1: Once violence gets going, it really can take on a life of its own. People can start committing violence because violence was committed against them or their group, and it kind of spirals. We're not there yet. And I think that gives me a lot of hope. If we really concertedly agreed that we didn't want our country to descend into that kind of a situation, we have the ability to change it right now.
2: Welcome to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. It's been two years since the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol here in D.C., and a lot has happened. Over 900 people have been criminally charged, and about half have pleaded guilty to one or more charges so far. But we know that the threat of political violence remains dangerously high. The number of recorded threats against members of Congress has jumped more than tenfold compared to 2016, coming in at the rate of about 26 per day. This fall, a man was arrested for assaulting Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer in their home. And in June, another man was arrested outside Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's house with a pistol, a knife, and zip ties. It's tempting to dismiss these incidents as isolated, awful acts, but they reflect a broader trend. The American public's support for political violence is now nearing levels seen in Northern Ireland at the height of the troubles there. Well, here at How To, we are not content to just marinate in fear and blame. We always want to know what to do next to start to climb out of the hole we are in. So we did what we always do. We called up the smartest experts we could find and asked them how we got here and how we can prevent more tragedies like January 6th. Where where
1: were you on January 6th? So I was sitting in my office in New Mexico and I got a call from a four-star military general who I'd been working with, and he said, are you looking at the television?
2: Meet Dr. Rachel Kleinfeld. She's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an expert on democracy and security, which is why she found herself talking with that four-star general.
1: I got on the phone with a lot of people I'd been working with in law enforcement and different things to try to help figure out if there could be a better response in real time. And as you know, the military was being held back, and the commander-in-chief was actively absent. I can't say I was surprised. I was actually actively working to avoid some of this, but I was pretty dismayed. You know, it feels like a real desecration to see that happening in a building that's part of our kind of civic religion in this country.
2: Dismayed, but not surprised. That's because Rachel has been one of the people warning us all about the potential for serious political violence here for years. I think it was three years ago, Rachel, that you and some colleagues invited about 50 researchers, conflict experts, government officials to come together to talk about whether America should be worried about political violence. And I remember there was a checklist as I walked in, sort of conditions for political violence, I remember looking down at it and every single one I could check in my head and I was like, oh, crap. Um, And then um, you very, you know, thoughtfully and creatively led us through some simulations of what, you know, what might happen, some possible scenarios, a bunch of which have have actually come true. Uh, So I guess I wonder when you think back on that, before we kind of get into where we are, Do you think, um, are things better than you expected? Are things kind of just what you were worried about at the time?
1: Yes, I remember that very well. And that was really one of the first times that um, I think those of us who had been looking at political violence internationally and seeing the trends in America that we saw internationally managed to bring together and convince at least some Americans that it could happen here. And I think it's frankly pretty similar to what I at least imagined. Um, Countries like America that are strong democracies with strong institutions, we don't fall into civil war in the traditional view of it, but we have a long history of the sort of political violence we have, singular acts of terrorism, and uh, political activity that becomes violent, mob violence, and violence against minority groups, and we're, we're seeing all that.
2: More than half of Republicans and a third of Democrats believe the United States to be on the brink of a new civil war. But Rachel says we should worry about a few other things first.
1: One is that you can weaken your own institutions until greater levels of violence become more possible. And that's why some of us are so worried about the polarization over democracy itself. If we weaken our institutions, the courts, the rule of law, things like that, then we could have a civil war. But the other thing is that um, violence directed at taking over a party or taking um, part of a state by suppressing the vote, forcing other people uh, to stay away, that isn't a civil war. It's a sort of a more targeted strategy, and we are seeing that. that's really using violence for political ends.
2: So today, Rachel's going to explain how we got here and how we can get out. Then next week, we're going to take everything she taught us and try to figure out how to apply it on a granular level in our own neighborhoods and families by talking to Curtis Toller, a former Chicago gang leader who now helps rival groups solve conflict without violence. There's a lot of fascinating lessons that we can take from his experience in the streets that translates to politics. Now, you might be thinking, look, I didn't storm the Capitol on January 6th. I'm not a rabble-rousing politician. What can I possibly do? Well, as we're gonna hear, people like you and me, if we band together, can have way more impact than we think. Stay with us.
0: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into questions like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? Or what is the power of negative thinking? The show is hosted by Katie Milkman, She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, athletes, Nobel laureates, and more about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones. Choiceology is out now. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com podcast, or find it wherever you listen.
2: While we were putting this show together, the January 6th Select Committee referred four criminal charges to the Justice Department against former President Donald Trump. For the last year, we've watched as more and more information has come to light about what transpired that day. But one of the most fascinating storylines is watching how people can react so differently to the process.
1: I'm actually on record having written two conflicting things, which I suppose is good for someone who claims to be an expert to admit that this is tough.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's complicated.
1: We know in other countries that when you start prosecuting leaders of a country, uh, it can lead to a downward spiral where each side thinks they can then prosecute the other side for political purposes, especially when the leader is still quite popular. So we just saw violence in Brazil after Bolsonaro stepped down because he lost an election from some of his supporters. We're seeing violence in Peru after the leader of Peru tried to have a coup, uh, was forced out, and now his supporters are getting violent. So we know that prosecuting popular ex-leaders, even if they deserve it, is a real risky thing to do because it can start a downward spiral. On the other hand, if someone really deserves it, if they've done something, you know, that's not tax evasion, that's not minor, but that is pretty major, like treason or a coup, and you don't prosecute them, then the rule of law itself slips. Then you don't have a system in which everyone is equal before the law. And that's actually the exact opposite of what you want in a democracy.
2: Ah, this is such a great example of the diabolical nature of intractable conflict, right? Like, if you don't hold people accountable then you undermine institutions and open the door to all kinds of mayhem. Um, And then if you do hold people accountable, you risk further violence because uh, it can feel unjust to the followers of that person if they're still very popular. Um, So you kind of have to just do both with great care, it sounds like. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think being an adult is hard (laughs) in a political system. And (laughs) um, this is one of those times when we all have to put on our big boy and girl pants and realize that we are in a tough spot. And um, we have to get through it with as much uh, accountability to our system, but also as much empathy to some of the human beings within the system as we possibly can, because war is incredibly ugly, painful um and violent. And so we're going to have to come out the other side of this political moment together. And we need to be spending a lot more time empathizing with the other side and figuring out how we're going to do that.
2: It's always helpful for me to think about a marriage, right? Like if you you can get divorced, but let's say you have kids together, you you have to hold the other person accountable, right? And not humiliate them to the point where <laughs> uh you actually burn down the whole house, right? And the whole family suffers. So it sounds like that's kind of the the same challenge is once we we sort of have to accept um, that the other side isn't going anywhere and we are stuck with each other and we have kids together. Um, I think
1: before you get to the divorce stage, it's useful to think about this as a parent of a four and seven year old in a marriage. (laughs) I think about this a lot that, you know, you might imagine that divorce will end your troubles. But your troubles are all yeah. still there. They're just logistically more complicated. And um, right. now you have to do it with someone who really dislikes you even more. And it's better. Well, that better sounds like an election.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and better if you can stop
1: <laughs> before the divorce and um, yeah. come up with how you, can, how you can save the marriage. And you know, there was one of the political candidates running this cycle said, you know, if my wife and I agree on seven out of 10 things, we pop a bottle of champagne. Um, that is certainly how my marriage goes. My guess is it's how a lot of others go. You know, you disagree on a lot in a marriage and yet you find some way to hold together. And, and I think that we have to have just a more realistic place for where we are as a country. We're going to disagree on a lot and we somehow have to figure it out.
2: Hmm. And all of this thinking about children and, and divorces and marriages and the country, makes me wonder about something that I don't think I've ever asked you about. What is it about this subject of political conflict that drew you in to begin with? I mean, there are a lot of things that you could be spending your time on. Why this?
1: I wonder that myself sometimes.
2: When I first started
1: my career, I worked in India. I worked in India on microcredit, which was something that the international development community was doing then, giving small, small grants to women to see if that could help with economic development. And I went all around India in really rural, poor areas. And one thing I found was that a lot of groups in that society, police, landlords, and various people, were using a lot of violence to keep people from starting small businesses. And no one was talking about it because human rights people, international development people, democracy people, none of them really wanted to think about violence. And then as I got into studying issues of how you build the rule of law, I realized that this was kind of endemic, that the people who studied violence tended to be in the military. They tended to be violence specialists, some of them on the good guy side and some of them on the bad guy side, but not many people who thought about violence in terms of how it affected a whole political system or an economic system. And so I, I sort of fell into it and I found that I was one of the only people doing it. There's a small group of us now, but it still seems pretty important.
2: There are some interesting analogies between the U.S. and India, right, when it comes to how politicians stoke pre-existing conflicts, right? In the U.S. it would be racial conflict, in India it would be Hindu-Muslim tensions.
1: That's right. They have a strong democracy, and they've had a strong democracy for a long time now, 70-some years. But they just got downgraded by Freedom House, where I sit on the board, to partially free And that's because the leader who was elected popularly and is very popular because of his business stances, because he stoked a lot of polarization, he has managed to ride that populism and polarization into a place in power where he's curbing the press. He's cutting off newspapers in whole sections of the country, cutting off the Internet over and over and over again, making it really hard for groups to organize against him. And even though he's left elections alone, elections are still free and fair in India, the whole system is such that you can't really speak out against the government without fearing jail or uh, regulatory action against you or tax action against you. And so Freedom House now considers them not a full democracy. And I think it's a good warning sign to America of how you can lose your democracy, even if elections actually proceed pretty well.
2: Hmm. That must be kind of heartbreaking, I'd imagine, to watch. It is. There's a billion, billion right? plus in people India in and, India and yeah. Um, yeah.
1: they deserve better. Bad leaders have bad effects on countries. It's hard to overestimate how much trouble that they can cause to even a really strong and well-functioning country.
2: It's really hard, I think, when you're in your own country to see clearly what's happening, right? Because it's so close to you.
1: You're absolutely right. It's happening everywhere. (laughs) So yes, it's helpful sometimes to look at other countries.
2: Yeah, a little bit of distance is helpful. And and I also find it really helpful to talk to you because, you know, although you, uh, you know, spent time in Washington, have been educated at very elite institutions, you um, also spent a lot of time in New Mexico. And if I have this right, grew up in a log house in Alaska.
1: That's right. I was really lucky to grow up in um, a pretty rural part of America. I love Alaska and my family's still there. Um, And now I live in New Mexico and I really, really love more rural, empty parts of America. In fact, I think my Twitter handle or some public place, maybe my bio, says that I'm a a lover of bleak landscapes, and that's pretty true, I (laughs) love bleak, empty places.
2: Do you think that that experience and that your connection to these places changes how you look at our political conflict in any way? I've had the experience of living
1: with a lot of different types of people. My my parents are conservative Republicans. Now they probably consider themselves libertarian. And so we've had a lot of political arguments, but they're still my parents. Um, Alaska is a place where a lot of Policies that make sense in other parts of the world don't make sense. You see a a lot of why people live differently, why their policy views are differently, why a rural area would react differently to COVID policies than a city. So I guess it maybe gives you a little bit more empathy for different sides.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, And that's the thing that's so rare and precious, right? In a highly polarized country, segregated country, uh, you really lose that ability to empathize. Um, across differences. And I, and I guess I wonder, so we've talked geographically about patterns and differences within the U.S. and between different countries. I want to talk for a second, historically, a lot of people talk about the level of political violence today, and we're trying to get a sense of how worried we should be. And you've written about how violence today differs in interesting and important ways from the 1960s. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: In the 60s and 70s, you had um, quite a bit of violence, more than now, actually. It was a high point of political violence in modern times in America. But these groups were fringe groups. Nobody considered them part of the mainstream. And in the 80s and 90s, as violence moved from the left to the right, there might be some winks and nods, but violence was a line that no one crossed. And what we've started seeing now is that Violent groups are being allowed more and more into the mainstream. So you have actual politicians running who have deep ties to some of these groups. Some of them are members of Oath Keepers or other violent uh, militia groups. You get numbers in the 30% of Republicans who think that political violence is okay. And you get numbers not too far off that for Democrats, by the way, Um, even though the violence is disproportionately on the right. And that mainstreaming of violence as a political act shows up in the people who acted on January 6th or who you see threatening school board members and other local officials, mayors and so on, who are getting vastly more threats than before. And that's that violence used to be in the 60s and 70s, not just fringe, but it's also all over the world committed by a particular demographic. It's usually young men, unmarried, childless, without jobs, Um, who often have criminal histories. And those are still the people who commit spontaneous hate crimes in this country. But the people who acted on January 6th or who are active in school board hate groups and violence and so on, they tend to be middle-aged, they're married, they have kids, Um, they have jobs, often white-collar jobs, they've often been to college. So this is a very different demographic. It's really a mainstream set of people who have seen violence as part of an expression of political activity.
2: You know, it seems like, you know, obvious to me why this <laughs> why this is a problem, uh, but it's not obvious to everyone. Right. People will say, you know, it's free speech uh, or these people are just joking or, you know, when you see an, a political ad with someone uh, with a high powered weapon, um, you're being too sensitive if you think that that is scarier and inappropriate. Is there a way to explain this to people? Like, why does the normalization of violence or even language about violence or symbols of violence, why does that matter?
1: I think it is hard to explain to people because America has a history of thinking of political violence as part of our founding story. We had an independence movement and broke from a tyrannical regime in our minds. And um, we did that through citizen violence that was part of our citizenship to take up arms. So now a lot of gun rights people consider holding arms to be an act of citizenship, therefore a positive thing. What I'd love to be able to explain is that, first of all, a lot of people who hold those views would never themselves commit violence. They might think that they're upholding citizenship and our founding story. But there's a lot of people in America who are not quite as balanced. And they are the majority of people who actually act in political violence when you look at who... Uh, commits mass acts of violence or um, terrorist acts and so on. There are people who are having issues that are coming out in violent acts, and they will act because of the normalization of violence, even if the person who's normalizing it won't. And we've hit that point in the country. We've seen it against both Republicans and Democrats, and I think this is the other thing to understand, that Republicans are overwhelmingly committing political violence now on the right But they're also committing a lot of it against other Republicans, not just against Democrats. They're committing a lot of violence against um, and threats against the people who sought to impeach Trump against Republicans like the uh, election supervisor in Maricopa County or the Philadelphia supervisor whose kid had to get um, security because there were so many threats against him. So it's not normal to normalize because other people will act on it. And those people who are acting on it are threatening Democrats and Republicans. And one thing that democracy requires is to be able to settle our differences without violence. Once you bring violence in, you've kind of lost the argument. And once you allow violence, you can't settle arguments. In a country as diverse as ours with as many different views as ours, you just can't allow violence because it won't stop.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is a special challenge of the United States, right, as you say, is that the government does not have a monopoly on the use of force. And I remember that being one of the conditions on your checklist when we met uh, to talk about where political violence happens. And the government's never had a monopoly on the use of force in the United States. And it's seen as a right to to bear arms. So that makes things extra complicated. And then... um On top of that, you know, you have people who, politicians especially, but also pundits and other people who are influential who uh, use violent language, who dehumanize the opponents, who create a sense of extreme threat to you, your family, your way of life, your values. And then you have um, a small number of people, and it doesn't take that many, who are troubled for other reasons, who see this as a way to do something to make this fear and anger and sense of grievance stop, to make that pain stop. It's a difficult thing to explain, that the way that language and action interact.
1: There are people who gin up an atmosphere in which other people act. And if you don't recognize that the creation of the atmosphere is part of what's enabling it, you might think that you are uh, not guilty We really need to find a way to convince the people who are creating this atmosphere that they are really the ones holding the gun and someone else is pulling the trigger.
2: So how do we get those people, the ones holding the gun, so to speak, to realize that things have gone too far? After the break, we're gonna get specific about what can be done right now by all kinds of Americans to lower the threat level. Don't go anywhere.
0: Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to make a change this year, check out How to Be a Better Human a podcast from TED. I'm Chris Duffy. I'm a comedian, and each week on How to Be a Better Human, I sit down to have an honest and hopefully funny and revealing conversation with an expert who can help us to see the world in a new way. This season, we're diving into everything from how you can love better to how to create habits that stick, to how to have hope in a world and at a time where that feels really challenging. You can find all those topics and so many more on episodes of How to Be a Better Human, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We're back with our democracy and security expert, Rachel Kleinfeld. We wanted to know what people can do to reduce the odds of more political violence. But what you should do really depends on who you are and who you know. So we figured we should break it down into groups. First up, journalists. I think I'd want to tell them three
1: things. First. They need to downplay the fringes and highlight the median. Americans have such distorted views of the other party. We really see the other party with, like, a pitchfork and a tail and horns. It's just not true. Most people in the other party have nothing to do with our caricature of the other party. And it's really up to journalists to show that more. They also uh, could emphasize disagreement within parties. So, number two, stop painting everything as Republican versus Democrat— and start showing that there's a lot of disagreement within these parties. And the third would be to help others empathize more. I've talked about empathy a lot. I think it's crucial, but it's also hard. It sounds so feel-good. But, you know, if you really believe the other side is racist or you really believe that the other side thinks that all members of their group should be put ahead and your group should be put behind, then empathy seems almost immoral. And it's important to think about each other in ways that make it a little easier to empathize, because we both have clearer vision of who these other people actually are and what they believe, but also telling stories about them that help you understand where they're coming from.
2: My favorite research on this is by um, the organization More in Common, and they just did a new one, and they do this every so often, where they basically quiz a bunch of Americans, like large sample of Americans, about what what Republicans think Democrats think and what Democrats think Republicans think. And they've done it before, and it was like the more partisan people who consumed a lot of news were the ones who got everything totally wrong about the other side. But now it seems like um, that's sort of spread. So now, you know, less partisan, more typical Americans also are getting everything wrong about each other. And this specific focus here was about what should be taught about America's history in Classrooms. So, Republicans believe that most Democrats reject the United States founding documents and want kids to feel ashamed and guilty of our history, which is false. And Democrats believe that most Republicans want kids to learn a sort of airbrushed version of history that glosses over slavery and racism, which is false. So, it's, you know, the further down we get in this path, the more mistakes we make about each other. So uh, that seems like good advice for journalists to be constantly looking for those stories to help us know each other with more accuracy, right? So that's what journalists can do. What would you like to see politicians do? Politicians from both sides should call out their own
1: party more. Um, There might be more opportunities to do it on the right right now, but really the idea holds that People are much more likely to listen to leaders from their own group. And so if a Democrat denounces Republican violence, nobody cares. In fact, it can even backfire. But it takes Republicans to criticize Republicans and it takes Democrats to criticize Democrats. So uh, Republicans are going to have a lot more opportunity to criticize the use of gun imagery and shooting imagery and campaign ads to criticize violent dehumanizing rhetoric. But there's some dehumanizing on the left, and there's also property crime on the left that the left really hasn't grappled with. The BLM protests were vastly nonviolent, but some percentage of them, a small percentage, but nevertheless, were actually the most um, costly insurance event in modern history because there was so much property crime. Democrats still don't talk about it. So both sides Mm -hmm. could call out their own party.
2: Yeah, it's, again, here's this diabolical nature of high conflict, right? It feels dangerous to acknowledge any pop- property crime, or even when it's true, right? It feels dangerous for each side. The they feel like they can't give an inch or the other side will take a mile.
1: I worked for a while for a um, Palestinian domestic violence nonprofit that helped Palestinians and um, Arab Israelis within Israel. And they got so much crit- criticism for helping these domestic violence victims Because it was like airing dirty laundry, you shouldn't admit that this is happening. But somebody had to help those women. Every community has domestic violence. And that kind of polarization makes it really hard to solve our own problems. And it's up to each side to solve their own in a certain way.
2: Which does lead me to ask, I asked you about what journalists could do, what politicians could do. Can you say something about what listeners who are not politicians and not journalists could do, whether it's on social media or with their families is there anything they can do, or is that kind of just naive?
1: No, I think regular people, I mean, the country is composed of regular people. And uh, one thing we can do that's real simple is avoid violent jokes. Um, you know, it might sound kind of funny and and not important, but in fact jokes are one of those things that go beyond our rational brain and allow us to uh, say things or do things that we would never really say or do. You know, you'd never really say or do uh, I want to kill this political figure. But you might pass on a funny joke that makes that point. And it's actually really dangerous. It normalizes it in a way that, um, that you wouldn't otherwise expect. So that's one thing regular people can do. I think another thing we can do is try to join a group or get interested in an activity that has nothing to do with our politics and that might cross political lines. Whether that's a community garden or a rotary club or a business group or what have you. Find some way to to meet with people who might not share your politics and not talk about politics, talk about other things. It just, we need to renormalize human interaction in this country in a way that um, we're not used to doing, but used to be very normal. People used to be in unions with people who didn't share their political beliefs and bowling clubs and all sorts of things. We don't do that anymore, so we could.
2: I learned a lot about conflict from interviewing Rachel for my last book, and I was struck by how much of what she said overlapped with what I learned from Curtis Toller, the former gang leader who now interrupts violence in Chicago. You know, a lot of violence has to do with
1: personality. It has to do with the, your level of aggression. So people recreate ways of acting within the family, within the uh, community, within the national sphere. And they do look fairly similar. So I think there's a lot to be said about gang violence and political violence. But the other reason that they have a lot in common is because of this identity factor. We know that people are much more likely to become aggressive about their politics if a lot of their identities line up. So that means that it's a lot easier to trigger anger at your identity or feeling dehumanized or feeling disrespected based on a multitude of things, you know, what you drink, what car you drive, what sports you watch. The more polarized we are, the more our our identities line up, the easier it is to feel disrespected based on that identity from a lot of different activities, and the more easy it is to connect that with our politics. And that's where America is now, and it makes us much more like two rival gangs.
2: Which is why we reached out to Curtis, who will talk with us next week about where he would start if he were gonna interrupt violence on Capitol Hill. Here's a sneak preview.
0: In a conflict, usually both sides have done harm. So you have to get both of them to even agree that harm has been done because you're gonna keep hitting that brick wall because if a person don't feel that they've done any harm, then it's kind of hard to get them to move forward, right? Like... Yes. Your your particular group shot eight people, right? And, And sometimes it's, can you admit that there was harm done, right? They'll say, but six of my um, guys were shot. You,
2: you kind of know what I mean, right? right? They always jump right. to- Right, the defensive uh, yeah, yeah, justification. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: So yeah, really getting both sides to, to really come to a consensus that there has been harm done on both sides is something that you have to, to get to, to to really move forward.
2: What about you? What do you need to move forward in 2023? What problem can we help you solve? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646 495 4001. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merit Jacob is senior technical director, and Charles Duhigg created this show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.